0: I'm laughing at this. Oops, I forgot. You got it. I'm laughing at this because I've been saying for the last couple of weeks that in at C's we've been doing at seas we've been doing um, Dante and the Paradiso, and we're finishing him, and we're going to go on to Chaucer. And Fred, I've got <laughs> Boethius everywhere in my mind with Chaucer. You know, and and the rhyme scheme particularly. I mean, I'm going to really enjoy doing that with the group and see if they see if they pick it up when we read it, but. Um, but anyway, I've been laughing because um, *Violent Bear Away is very intense, and *The Divine Comedy* is in sublime reaches. I mean, we're we're in we're in the imperium with God, and to read Robinson's um, *Isaac and Archibald* brings us very much down to earth. So it's been a for me it's been a comic contrast um, until we until we started the the fellowship. Because the Hobbit, Hobbitland is the Shire, is a place of such ordinary things. The hobbits are a people who don't want to be bothered with great adventures and and um, journeys and quests, and they want to eat. That's their great pastime. They love eating. They want to smoke their weed, and they want to grow things. They love plants. They love gardening. Um, so we're in a very, very ordinary. We 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 start off, Fellowship of the Ring, The Return of the Kings, or I mean, the um, the Lord of the Rings, in a very ordinary world. So with with Robinson's poem, we're we're sort of bringing the two worlds together again. This is the third section. On my page four, you should you should all have the same copy. Remember that um, that the young boy set off on his walk with Isaac to go to Archibald's. And the young boy had a tough time keeping up, even though um, Isaac is much older than he is. So let's pick up at, at the third section. It's about line 142 or 3 or so. At the end of an hour's walking after that, the cottage of old Archibald appeared. Little and white and high on a smooth round hill, it stood with hackamatechs and apple trees before it. a big barn roof beyond. And over the place, trees, house, fields, and all, hovered an air of still simplicity and a fragrance of old summers, the old style that lives the while it passes. I dare say that I was lightly conscious of all this when Isaac, of a sudden, stopped himself, and for the long first quarter of a minute, gazed with incredulous eyes forgetful quiet of breezes and of me and of all else under the scorching sun, but a smooth cut field, faint yellow in the distance. I was young, but there were few things that I could see, and this was one of them. Well, well, said he, and Archibald will be surprised, I think, said I, but all my childhood subtlety was lost on Isaac, for he strode along like something out of Homer powerful and awful on the wayside, so I thought. Also, I thought how good it was to be so near the end of my short-legged endeavor to keep the pace with Isaac for five miles. Hardly had we turned in from the main road when Archibald, with one hand on his back and the other clutching, his huge-headed cane came limping down to meet us. Well, 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 said he. And then he looked at my red face and streaked with dust and sweat and shook my hand and said it must have been a right smart walk that we had had that day from Tilbury Town. By the way, Tilbury Town is a little bit like Faulkner's Jefferson City. It's this mythic town in which so many of Robinson's characters are set. Um, Remember, I've urged you all, I hope you all will, Um, I I, I think I'll probably read them before we finish, I'm not sure, but the two poems of Robinson that you want to read are Richard Corey, and um, Luke Havergal. Luke Havergal is a powerful, I think, prophetic poem. But those are two poems of his you, you should know. They're, they're just, they're truly great poems. And one of them is going to shock you. Or actually, maybe both of them will shock you. We'd had that day from Tilbury Town. Magnificent, said Isaac. And he told about the young west, the beautiful west wind there was, which cooled and clarified the atmosphere. You must have made it with your legs, I guess, said Archibald. And Isaac humored him with one of those infrequent smiles of his, which he kept in reserve, apparently, for Archibald alone. But why, said he, should Providence have cider in this world, if not for such an afternoon as this? And Archibald, with a soft light in his eyes, replied, that if he chose to go down cellar, there he would find eight barrels, one of which was newly tapped, he said, and to his taste, an honor to the fruit. Isaac approved most heartily of that, and guided us forthwith, as if his venerable feet were measuring the turf in his own dooryard, straight to the open rollway. Down we went, out of the fiery sunshine to the gloom, grateful and half-sepulchral, where we found the barrels, like eight potent sentinels, close-ranged along the wall. From one of them, a bright pine spike, spile, I think it's spike, spile, stuck out alluringly, and on the black flat stone just under it, glimmered a late-spilled proof that Archibald had spoken from unfaithed experience. There was a fluted antique water glass close by, and in it, prisoned, or at rest, There was a cricket of the brown soft sort that feeds on darkness. Crickets traditionally are images associated with death in poetry, one of them. Isaac turned him out and touched him with his thumb to make him jump, and then composedly pulled out the plug with such a practiced hand that scarce a drop did even touch his fingers. Then he drank and smacked his lips with a slow patronage and looked along the line of barrels there, with a pride that may have been forgetfulness that they were Archibald's and not his own. I never twist a spigot nowadays, he said, and raised the glass up to the light. But I thank God for orchards, and that glass was filled repeatedly for the same hand. Before I thought it worthwhile to discern again that I was young, and that old age, with all its woes, had some advantages. That's the end. It, the fourth section begins now. Archibald said, Isaac, when he, we stood outside again, I have it all in my... We'll go on. but So they're there in the cellar drinking, they're together. The boy's coming to the end of his journey with the two men, and the two men are finally together. We'll pick up here when we start. Barbara, welcome. Good to see you. Um... Okay, Um, I want to just spend a couple of minutes touching on, as a a way of reviewing, we've not not been together and and I think Violent Beared Away was a pretty intense novel and um, I think most of us had questions about what the title of the the novel meant. I'd like to take a minute to see if I could sum it up before we start um, The Fellowship. The Violent Beared Away, if you've, if you've gone to my... Remember, I, I wrote you all an email. I hope you got it. If you didn't, go online and take a look at the, the um, outline for tonight's class because I did a review and I, I, I did a long quote from Violent Beared Away and offered a thought on the meaning of the title. I think what the title refers to is um, has its ultimate source in Christ. In Christ. Um, how to put this, that when a transcendent love enters the world, when it comes into the world, um, um, it always meets with resistance, or almost always meets with the resistance. And the, the typical response of people when they meet that transcendent love is a rejection of it, and a response of violence. We saw that bef- long before Christ came, we, we, see, we saw it in the Iliad, we saw it in the Odyssey, we saw it in the it Not We have not read a work in which virtue was not attacked violently because virtue tends to make people aware of what's wrong with them and instead of acknowledging and changing their response is to violently attack it, uh, to persecute it, to criticize it, even to kill it. So Socrates was condemned he was executed. Um, it, in, in one sense, it was passive because he had to drink, he was forced to drink hemlock. It wasn't a violent death. But he was forced to give up his life. Um, the martyrs did too. Christ exemplified that. I mean, what he did was um, um, reveal its hidden secret that whenever a transcendent love enters the world, the response on the part of most people is violent. And I think the meaning of the title is that those people who bring love to the world, who are the occasion for violence, bear the kingdom away. That's, By the way, that's one reading. The other translation of it is that they... Um, um, what's the... Not to just bear it away, but... Um, what's the other reading? You guys help me out here. What's... Um, what is it, Doc, when you... Take it, take it by, it by force. force. Take it by force. So the meaning, and this comes from Christ, those are his words, The, the, the from the time of John the Baptist, when people bring that love into the world, they're not trying to create violence, but they're the occasion for it. And when they do, they take the kingdom with them. They enter the kingdom. They become one. The occasion of that entering the kingdom is violence. They bear it away, they take it by force. Dante's, remember if you hold on to that reading from Dante's Paradiso that I gave you some weeks ago, it, it said it's the one it's the one thing that God cannot resist. That, that, that love um, is the way of approach to the kingdom one of the best examples that I could come up with, I think I gave you, I, I, a friend of mine, I don't want to go into the concrete details, I think I've already done that, but um, a, a really good friend of mine and friends of his um, started... um see if you can call Candy, because I think she's trying to get in. Call um, her. Um, they were so concerned at the secularizing of influences of the university but they established a, a curriculum within it that was approved. But at some point they were just hated by the students and the faculty and the, they received a letter from the president saying that what they were doing was divisive because the typical attitude of most people in the world is that people should get along, they should accommodate, they should go along with each other, they shouldn't cause problems. So the typical response of people in experiencing grace or a transcendent love is to reject it oftentimes violently. Herod is one of the best examples of that. So I don't think it's about people being violent and taking the kingdom. The kingdom can't be taken. It, it can't force. The kingdom is impenetrable to anything but love. Nobody can take. Satan will not take the um, Christ gave us those words, the gates of hell will not prevail. Not even hell can withstand God. Not even hell. So I think the violent bared away refers to that moment when somebody is so committed to Christ or love um, that their actions um, take the kingdom by force. That the love can't be resisted. They will enter the kingdom that's the nature of all the uh, apostles. It's the nature of all the martyrs. That in whatever whatever violence occurred in those moments when they gave themselves completely, was an occasion for entering the kingdom, taking it by force. And to try to relate that to the um, the phrase that you know that Fred latched onto last week, go warn the children of God of the terrible speed of mercy. The words were as silent as seeds opening one at a time in his blood. Remember that the homosexual had just sodomized um, young Francis. So he's got seeds in him by that violent act. But those seeds now are looked at as the source of something that will be a part of his um, calling to be a prophet, to take God to the world. So, and... I think the point is, in those moments, grace is immediate. It's there. It's there. I mean, how can it be otherwise if God is present <laughs> in those moments? Um, it's there, instantaneously. It was always there, waiting. You know, it just needed the occasion. Um, anyway, those are just a couple of thoughts, and I'm glad to let any of you comment on them, or differ, or or nuance, or you know, do whatever you want. But I just wanted to offer a couple of thoughts before we put The Violent Aware away because it was a pretty intense story. So any, any thoughts or responses or comments or disagreements? Or member O'Connor was very clear in this, in her writings, on her own writing, that she said, these are, these are her words, the world is under construction. The world is under construction. The grotesque comedy focuses on that moment when grace and evil meet. And it always leaves a person in a, in a, in a position of decision. So many of her short stories ended that way. We talked about that when we did it. When grace is offered, it's always the occasion for a violence because it's always res- resisted. Remember, she said that um, the, the world is governed by Satan, um, when grace is offered um, and people want to have their own way or do whatever they want to do, it's always an occasion for violence. And the, what, what results from that meeting of grace and violence is the grotesque, a disfigurement. It, it can't be otherwise. I mean, the, the most perfect image of, the, of grotesque comedy is the crucifixion. It's God being crucified. It's a grotesque image. It's horrible. And yet, it's the most stunningly beautiful image in all of history. God so loved his humans that he wanted to take on our nature and answer our sins. And to do that, he had to die. He had to die. Um, So the most perfect image of grotesque comedy is the cross. Out of this grotesque meeting comes this extraordinary thing, a, a change in a person's way of standing in the world, whatever he does. Let me stop there. any, any responses or questions or comments or Candy are you with us? I, I hope you are I, I know you tried to get on a couple of times and um, she, she, is Robert she is are you are you on Candy? are you is that a yes?
1: Yes, I'm in. I'm sorry. I have a heavy finger. I keep punching the wrong buttons.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Thanks. I'm glad you're here. Um, if any of you don't remember, Candy was here a thousand years ago, and she's not been here since. <laughs> so, okay. No, no No comments on this, uh, Violent Beard Away? Okay, let's get to the movie. Um, a couple of things. Um, there are a couple of sources for for the work that Tolkien did in, in, the, in the, uh, um, the Lord of the Rings. Most of them are northern myths, and we've not done them, and there's no point in going into them, but he was heavily influenced, just as C.S. Lewis was, by lots of the northern myths, not the Iliad or the Odyssey, but northern myths, um, dealing with Vikings and that mythic world there. But one of the more immediate that we can track down that I can point to comes from Plato. And um, by the way, I, I went online just to see what people were doing with this, and I left a couple of things in our folder. so. For those of you who are interested, you might just check them out. I'm sure there are others. I, I'm just not. As, I, I, I've not read, um, Tolkien. I, I, we've seen the movie, many times, but I've not read him, and I don't know the background. So, I'm with a lot of you, and when we set out in this, but one of the things I'm pretty sure was a source, for, um, Tolkien was Plato, and I wanna, I wanna, go there with you guys now and read this. Um, this is from Plato's Republic. We've talked about Plato a number of times. We've not done it because it's philosophy. But um, but in the Republic of Plato, um, remember that the Republic begins with... Um, a number of people approaching Socrates and asking him what justice is. This I've claimed that this is a foundational work of Western civilization, belongs with the Iliad and the Odyssey. It follows Homer. In some ways I think Homer, sh- I'm, I don't think, I know um, Homer shaped Plato's mind and made it possible for Plato to do what he did. The poets came first on this even though the philosophers don't admit that. Um, the, a number of people approach Socrates asking him what justice is. And he doesn't want to answer them, and they force him to go along. And so one of the questions that Socrates raises at the outset of the story is, what do you do when people don't listen? When people want to have their way, it's all treated comically. There's no big deal. But it's there. They won't listen. He's forced to answer them. And um, that that set of questions that they asked um makes up the whole of the Republic. The whole effort of the Republic is to answer the question, what is justice, what is justice? And the definitions offered at the beginning are, justice is whatever those in power make it to be. So justice is man-made and it always serves the stronger over the weaker. And that's a conventional notion of justice, but it's true, it has been true over history. Those in power tend to use their power to make whatever they want. Socrates is going to counter that. He's going to say that's not so. But that's the beginning of this question. At the, at the root of the republic is this question, what is real justice? He'll answer it. In the beginning, the, the one guy who seems most ready to learn, because everybody around Socrates is not ready to learn. They're all, so many of them, are, they don't hear. They're not going to hear. The one most ready to learn is a guy named Glaucon, and it's so clear in Plato's treatment that Glaucon is one, like a disciple of Christ. He will go on to carry on what Socrates begins. He's just a good person. He asks questions, he wonders. In the second book Glaucon is um, offering um, a, a description of justice Socrates is going to answer it, but I want to offer you this because it's the conventional notion of justice. It was then, it is today. He says, this then, this is on book two, about in the margin numbers that are always used to um, indicate where you are in Socrates, or I mean in Plato and Aristotle, 359a in the margin to 360 or so, book two. This, then, is the genesis and being of justice. That means what's universal. The being of justice means not not just what is susceptible to time and place, but always is. That's the nature of justice. The genesis and being of justice is this. It's a mean between what is best, doing injustice without paying the penalty. So people can do whatever they want without having to answer the consequences. They get away with whatever they do. It's a mean between that and what is worse, suffering injustice without being able to avenge oneself. That's the Jonah, I mean the uh, Job question. Why does God let bad people do what they do? So Glocken is saying it's a mean between doing whatever you want without having to deal with the consequences, and the other is suffering what people do to you and being helpless to do anything about it. And he gives an example that that's the way the world... Because what he's doing is, it's like a devil's advocate. He's trying to give Socrates the best that the world can offer. And Socrates is going to answer it all. That's what he does in the Republic. And here at this point, Glaucon goes on to say that people want to be able to do whatever they want to do. Because there's something in us that's disordered. All human beings. He says... The license of which I speak would best be realized if they should come into possession of the sort of power that it is said the ancestor of Gyges, the Lydian, once got. They say he was a shepherd toiling in the service of the man who was ruling Lydia. There came to pass a great thunderstorm and an earthquake. The earth cracked and a chasm opened at the place where he was pasturing. He saw it, wondered, and it went down. He got this ring, Gyges' ring. That ring empowered him to do whatever he wanted. He could make himself invisible. He could avoid threats. He could take whatever he wanted. So, Gaiji's ring is an image of a power that um, helps us avoid death or harm. It also gives us the power to take whatever we want, okay? On the page following, because what what, Glau- or what Glau- Glaucus is trying to do is push the argument as far as he can, he makes this argument. He says, um, I'm doing as much as I can with men like this. I, I suppose to complete the speech by a description of the kind of life that awaits each man. I, it must be told then. And if it's somewhat rustically told, don't suppose that it's I who speak, Socrates, but rather those who praise injustice ahead of justice. Because remember, most men are going to make justice whatever they want it to be, even if it's unjust. They'll say that the just man who has such a disposition will be whipped. The good man will be whipped. He'll be racked, he'll be bound, he'll have both his eyes burned out, and at the end, when he's undergone every sort of evil, he will be crucified. This is Plato, centuries before Christ. And know that one shouldn't wish to be, but to seem to be just. So, what he's saying is the only answer, the only answer to seeming is death, that the just man be crucified. Now, if you remember, that, that's, I mean, the Psalms give that same argument. Every, every year we hear those readings from the Psalms in which the unjust men, want to get rid of the just man because he's an embarrassed to them. He want, they, want, they want to kill him. Plato is making the argument that the only way you can find the answer any seeming, because all of us want to seem to be good, is crucifixion. Because it's only then that every wrong disposition will be answered. That's what Christ did. And in that sense, he answered the Jewish tendency, which was one of the greatest, To believe that if I only do this, if I follow the laws, if I say my rosaries, I do my prayers, whatever it is, um, I'll be righteous. Um, Christ took away everything because he took away all seeming good. So here in Plato, it seems to me, we have the kernel of what's at issue in the Lord of the Rings. But what's at the heart of this is this ring and the power it gives men, this this sense of autonomy, that it um, it enables them to feel like they're they can avoid death and they can get whatever they want. And you know it as Tolkien presents it, the cost of that is darkness. That once you put that ring on, you become. Um, um, You're at the mercy of Sauron and his will. So that ring um, gives Sauron that power and it draws people to itself. And to the extent that it does, it makes them susceptible to him and his powers and the darkness. And here's the quote that I want everybody to remember as as we work through the book. Um, This was given at the beginning. You remember when it describes the distribution, the making of the rings and then the distribution of them. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of mortar where the shadows lie. The whole purpose of that ring is to bring everybody into the darkness and bind them there. So those are just some thoughts on on the ring. Um, um, What I'd like to do now is give a summary, a a brief summary, and then describe some of the effects of the movie Um, and I'm glad for anybody's help on the summary because there's a lot there but let me let me try to do the best I can here. Remember it begins with this whispering voice we're not in in the book, we're in the movie. So we've got an audio-visual mode of presentation that's absent in the book. In the book everything comes to us through our imagination. We have to imagine things. That's not so in the movie. In the movie, we hear things, we see things. And it begins with this voice whispering. The world has changed and it describes the effect. It's The changes take place in water, in air, in earth. It's as if all natural elements carry something now um, that wasn't before. It all began in the forging of the rings when Sauron forged them. It led to the wars that um, we get in that um, backstory that opens the movie, um, and we learn then that even though the elves and men tried to resist Sauron, they were constantly defeated. But in this one battle, the, um, um, Isildur cut off um, Sauron's finger and had the ring. And we we learn later from the Elven king that he tried to, he took. Um, Ilsador to the um, place of doom to throw the ring away and destroy it and he wouldn't. He kept the ring and then eventually remember when they're attacked by orcs he loses it and and eventually Gollum will find it. And it's at that point that the voice says history passed into legend legend into myth. Two thousand and two and a half thousand years later um, Gollum finds it and he has it for centuries. So that's part of the backstory that introduces the movie. The movie proper in our time starts, or in history time, if you want to call it that, when Bilbo is writing a story and making preparations to leave. And we're left with the sense that he's been fooling around with a ring recently, knowing he's going to use it um, in his departure. But he's writing a story. The story begins with his writing a story. I think there and back again. And it's. It, Gandalf um, comes to learn that something's going on. He comes to the Shire, and confronts um, Bilbo on the For day that. For his birthday. Huh. For his birthday. Well, but he's aware. He's also aware. We know that we'll learn that he's aware. Something's not right. He's there with more in his mind. And Frodo says when he meets um, Gandalf that something's not right. There's something strange going on with Bilbo. Bilbo, um, remember, disappears and leaves, and it's then that Gandalf confronts Frodo with the ring. There are two scenes I want to come back to in a moment, but it's at that point that he says that he has to leave because there are these um, creatures who are after him. And it's at that point he, um, he says leave, and Sam, remember, comes into it, and they leave, and on their way out of the Shire... Um, they meet with Pippin and Mary, who will accompany the journey. They go to this inn, and it's there that they meet Strider, who rescues them from the, um, what are those men called? The Nazgul. Naz- Nazguls. They flee, and um, remember that night when they rest for the evening, the, they make a fire foolishly, <coughs> and it, um, it, it lets the Nazgul know where they are, and they're attacked. And it's during that attack that Frodo is wounded. And um, it's a fatal wound because it comes from a a, Nazgul Nazgul sword. And it's at that point that Strider and the rest of the company take him. And um, Arwen comes and um, says, let me take him. I'm a faster rider. And she sets off. And she ends up taking him to um, Rivendell. Um, one of the elf kingdoms, and it's there that Frodo is healed. He's reunited with Bilbo, who gives him the sword and the Mithril, this amazing armor that can protect somebody from harm. It's there that the council meets because um, the the Elfin King knows as Gandalf, they've been aware of it for some time, that um, Sauron has been marshalling forces, Um, he's preparing for war, and they know that if um, they have to um, destroy the ring. So the council is is called, they all meet. Um, Boromir is the one who makes the argument most for taking the ring because he can use it in defense of Gondor's city because Gondor is, is itself um, in ruins um, from all these wars that have been taking place. Um, fighting breaks out among them, and it's at that point that Frodo steps forward and says, I will do it. He did not want to do it, it, um, it was the compulsion um, brought on by the stupidity of the men and the violence between them. And it's at that point that Gandalf steps forward and says he will be there. Aragorn offers his service, and finally Boromir does, and the company is formed. The Fellowship of the Ring, the, the, just to put it in context for a second, we've read epics before, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the um, Aeneid. The Iliad is the one closer to this because remember when Troy is destroyed and Aeneas has to found a home. He begins with a company. Remember the Iliad and the Odyssey are individualistic. That was one of the things Virgil was critical of in that Greek world. The Roman world is more given to company, a gathering of an us, a we. So it's a we that sets off. A fellowship is formed. It's not a private individual. It's a fellowship. And they set off you remember that when they set off that um, Sauron does what he can to throw them off and they're forced to go down into the uh, mines of Moria. It's there that they're attacked by orcs and, uh, and um, what do you call it? One of those trolls. And um, when they finally um, defeat them they flee and just as they're fleeing Um, Gandalf has to turn and face this creature that's called a Balrog and he says it's it's of the ancient line if you've seen the movie you'll know this is my reading I mean some of you may differ that 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 Balrog to me is an image of one of the fallen angels that that his power and his fire is in disproportion to any other evil we see um, in the movie um, and just when Gandalf seems to have defeated him, the tail of that creature comes up and whips him in and takes him down. It's it's like that description of the fallen angels taking part of heaven with them. So this goodness is defeated, seemingly defeated, and taken down in his fall. And there is um, there is this great grieving that follows. You know, the men, um, all the whole company is overcome. It's um, Aragorn who has the courage to say, everybody get up. He says to um, Legolas, Legolas. get the men going. And he says to Boromir, get the men going. Boromir wants to give in to pity. He says, let them rest. Aragon says, if we do, we're going to get caught. Pity is not, they're all grief-stricken. Aragon is the only one who has the presence to say, get up, go. Because if we don't, we're lost. Um, they set off and they enter this forest and it's there that they're, um, they're captured by the other elf and group and they're taken to Lothlorien and it's there that um, um, Frodo will meet um, Galadria who will face her trial with him. Do you remember when she comes down to look in that pool to see what's going to happen? Frodo is distraught. He sees the Shire being destroyed. And he brings the ring out and says, I I didn't want to do this. I wish it had never come to me. She approaches him as if she has an interest in the ring, and he offers it to her, and she refuses. It's one of a number of dramatic scenes where somebody has to confront themselves in their desire for the ring, to have that power. Um, She refuses it, and there's a moment where it's as if she droops into... Um, a relaxed exhaustion because of the ordeal she just underwent, that she had to refuse the ring and she did And She says, now I will diminish, now I will diminish. And she prepares to um, meet her end. They set off and um, they come to this place where I think their strategy is, at that point, they're going to go to Mount Doom to destroy the ring. Frodo goes off by himself, and Boromir meets him there and attacks him to get the ring. The two fight, um, and suddenly it's announced that the, um, the orcs are there, and they're attacked. Boromir is killed by that grotesque figure, and it's an extraordinary scene. His bravery, his courage, um, as he's dying, and Aragorn defeats the, the orc who killed him, um, and is bending over Bormer, Bormor says, Forgive me. You know, um, he acknowledges his wrong. It's a grief stricken moment. God, it's a, I mean, just to think about it. Uh, um, he dies with his confession on his lips, asking for forgiveness. Aragon's response is um, Noble heart, noble heart, I will do everything I can to not let um, Gondor. Gondor fall. Um, blesses, I mean, he, and then kisses him on the forehead as, um, what's the Alpha? Legolas. and uh, Miriam P- Gimli. Gimli look on. And so it's a crushing moment. This man of great honor, he's a, a great, great warrior, he, flawed, but he's an extraordinary warrior. Um, he dies heroically. Um, in the scene in which he and um, Frodo are fighting, um, Frodo leaves the company because it's clear to him and to Aragon that the ring is taking its toll on everybody, that everybody's feeling the weight of this power because we've learned that the, the ring has a life of its own. It calls out. Soron calls back. It's weighing. It's like, it, if I can put it this way, it's like the weight of sin, that when you bear sin for a time, it it wears you down, the weight of having to carry it. Everybody's worn out, and it's at that point that Frodo realizes he'll have to go alone. And what happens with Boromir confirms it. So he goes off during this battle, and he goes to the seaside. Um, Aragorn knows he has to leave and lets him go. And Sam goes running after Frodo. Frodo sets off in the boat, and you remember the the fellowship ends with (laughs) Sam rushing out into the water, and saying he's not going to leave him so Boromir this great human figure died this amazingly heroic death truly and then Sam who's this little nothing hobbit says I'm not leaving you and he goes out to his drowning. he goes out determined to not let Frodo go Frodo sees that Sam's not going to give up and turns around and saves him and pulls them in and um The last scene is of um, Aragon and Gimli and Legolas acknowledging that Frodo's got to do this on his own. There was a moment of real despair by Gimli Gimli, when he says, Phyllis was done. There's no hope. And Aragon assures him that there is hope um, and lets Frodo go, knowing, believing that something good, they've got to take their own part, whatever it is, even if the fellowship's broken. And they set off to um, see if they can um, save Pippin and Mary. Um, and Sam and Frodo go off. And as they're looking at Mount Doom in the far distance, um, Frodo turns to Sam and says, "I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're with me." And the two set off. So that's the end of the Fellowship. Now let me let me just give you some of the effects of the movie, and then I'm going to turn it over to you guys. But I to get all this out just to get the whole thing there because we are not coming back to this movie. We are doing one movie a night, (laughs) however hard that is. And If if you knew me at all, (laughs) you'd know how hard that is. Okay, Here are some of the effects that I don't want people to miss. I just do not want people to miss this. You guys will probably not remember these terms. If we were in school together, you would have had a test tonight. You would have had a quiz. At the very beginning, I I used these two terms. Both of them are from Plato and Aristotle. One of them is called mimesis. Mimesis. It's an imitation. The other was called diegesis. Those are Greek words from Plato and Aristotle. Mimesis means imitating somebody, letting them speak in their own voice. So in the Iliad, when Homer describes what happens... You know that periodically you'll describe Achilles saying something or Agamemnon saying something. That's um, an act of mimesis, a use of mimesis. Characters are speaking in their own voice, right? Drama. So when we read a Shakespeare play and say, Lear, when Lear is speaking, that's a mimetic act. Shakespeare, imi- he's imitating and he's letting Lear speak in his own voice. Yes okay Mises just means that diegesis means the author is speaking in his own voice now this is crucial it's not going to mean as much to you but it means everything to me because my field is literature and genres so looking dealing with the differences in genres is really big to me you know we've been reading lyrics all along and you know from the lyrics that typically when we read a lyric it's it's the poet speaking in his own voice i love this i love her she's my beloved the mother speaking of herself as a child, as a four-year-old child. Lyrics tend to be spoken in the poet's own voice. John Donne, Shakespeare, whoever. Okay? So, in mimesis, we go out to an external world and that external world is presented in its own terms. In lyric, we go into an internal world, into the feelings, what's invisible, because it's not external, it's inward, it's invisible. We go into the feelings and thoughts of the poet himself, so we go into another region. Now is that clear? It's absolutely crucial to get this. There are two different genres, lyric, drama. Narrative is mixed, because n- narrative contains both. Drama is mimesis, pure mimesis. Lyric is usually, it's not, but, I mean these are generalizations, lyric is pure interior. Narrative is both, it's a mixed mode because the speaker is often talking about somebody else, so we get his feelings and the actual words of other people. Lyric, narrative, drama. Lyrics, diegetic. Drama is mimetic. Narrative is mixed. It's both. Now, if there's any question, ask it now, because the jump I'm going to be make is making right now is not a small one. Is everybody clear on that? Diegesis, mimesis. Narrative is mixed, both. It's diegetic and mimetic. Over
2: over one more time, Doc.
0: Okay, um, here, here. I'm always usually glad for your questions, Mark. Here. Isaac and Archibald. Isaac and Archibald were two men, I knew them, and I may have laughed at them a little, and I must have... So he's telling a story from his own point of view, and even though he's telling a story about two men, it's it's impossible not to feel we're in this boy's world, standing with him as he's describing this ju- this journey. If I get a, if I could get another one, but you know, I mean the take supernatural love, which I've read a number of times, or one of Shakespeare's poems. Um, in thou thou seest the the dying of the day, you know, when Shakespeare's mm-hmm. talking about his beloved and he's dying, or. So in a lyric poem, it's the person, the poet speaking in his own voice. And even if he's describing something else, we're allowed into his interior world, his feelings and his thoughts. Today we get this in lyric, in song lyrics, popular lyrics. They're always about the interior of the songwriter. All the popular lyrics do that. In drama, there's none of that, none of that. In drama, you can't let that... that inner person take over because you're presenting the world in terms of his exterior events. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. That's what we experienced in Lear, right? Or Mark, um, Oedipus Rex, because I thought your comment on that was wonderful, That you know, the, the irony, the black irony of it. you were so clear on. We get Oedipus speaking in his voice and then Tiresias in his, and you know, remember all of the characters speaking in their voice, but nobody ever intervenes to say this is what I feel or I'm telling Drama is purely objective. Lyric is subjective. We go into the interior of a person. Okay? Narrative is a mixture. Jane Austen tells her story about her characters. Homer tells his epics. Faulkner tells his story about his. Ah, Flanner O'Connor. That's a narrative. It's telling a story. And you know that it's telling a story about all these events and very often we're allowed to go into the interior of those people. So lyric, drama, narrative. Okay? So in The Fellowship of the Rings, we've got a narrative, a story's being told. Yes? Yes. Somebody say yes, please. Stay with me. Yes? Yes. Except, thank you. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> Except it's a visual mode. We're no longer dealing with a written script. It's no longer Isaac and Archibald or the the Iliad or the Odyssey. It's a movie that's based on a narrative, a story being told. Yeah. And it's interesting because in a movie, what was once diegetic in a lyric poem (coughs) now takes the form of music. Graphics, all those other things besides the events of a story
3: voiceovers
0: Wait a minute. so who was it? I mean somebody said you love the music was it Debbie? that music is the diegetic aspect of narrative that music lets us into the interior to feel inwardly what's going on in those outward events take that music away a whole dimension of an interior life is gone. It's it's a much less rich movie. If you took away the visual effects, think just think for a moment. Um, what's his name? The director. Jackson. Jackson. The amazing um, graphics that were always mythic. You constantly got fields of vision that were at a distance, showing them to give a mythic accent. He took us. Tolkien took us back. To Homer and Virgil in a mythic world. There's almost no scene. When we're even in the caves of um, Moria, you get this sense of a vast underground, caverns and passageways, depths. You almost can't when you go into where the where Sorin is making his the you know his equipment and creating these creatures, we're in depths and hollows. So what I'm suggesting here is that even though we're in a narrative, because I'm I'm hoping this will help you understand what we're dealing with here. Even though we're being given a narrative that's presented in terms of externals, like all narratives, because it's a film, things can be done through different modes. One of them is visual. We don't get that in, in Tolkien's novel. We have to use our imaginations. Now, it's a visual mode. We get all these amazing mythic scenes. And the other mode is music. It's an oral mode we hear. One of the reasons I've been reading lyrics to you since the beginning is because I wanted you to hear poetry. Some of the people at Cs, I mean one of the one of the parishioners there wrote a note said she's been reading Chaucer aloud, and she and her husband and enjoying it because they're just you know, I mean, you know Chaucer, he's just a joy to read. But I've been saying from the beginning, poetry has to be read. You have to hear it. in in the movie. We have a whole visual mode of presentation and a whole oral mode. We hear the music, see the scenes. So what I'm suggesting is it's a way of adding these dimensions to just these external events that are taking place. That terribly deepens, enriches um, what he's doing. A couple of other effects. One of them is that things speak. It's another way of saying what I'm saying. The ring has a life of its own it wants to go back to its maker. Tolkien is saying that the things that man made always carry him in them. Um, Rivers speak. Trees speak. We will see at the very end. Trees will actually talk and move. Um, Swords speak. Frodo's sword will glow when orcs are around. Everything speaks. Nature, according to the scientific world, is, is dead. Nature to a mythic world, you know this from Homer from the very beginning, nature is alive. There's something there speaking as a voice. Um, Tolkien gives us a sense of time, of ages, the first age, the second age, the third age, when all these wars were taking place. And the voice that speaks to us in the beginning says, history passed into legend, this is um, at the end of that backstory that we get in the beginning, that whole backstory, History passed into legend, legend into myth. So we're right on the edge of what we know as history. But what, f- what Tolkien is doing is suggesting there may have been civilizations before us. Planet of the Apes, if you've seen that series, plays to that. These civilizations came and went. Homer suggested, remember when we did the Odyssey, The Phaeacians and the uh, Cyclops were once together. The Phaeacians had to move because the Cyclops were so violent. An age passed. The Greeks believed that there was a golden age, that there had been a golden, idyllic age. I think it's what um, Tolkien is showing us in Hobbitland. It's an idyllic, agrarian, almost Edenic world at peace. People love to eat. They don't want trouble. Um, so there's a sense that there may have been something before that we don't know about, that these wars took place that are a part of history. Um, and one last thing before I turn it over to you guys. Um, we've talked about um, it goes to these points, we've talked a lot in, in so many of our works of literature about the dangers of respectability I think it's a danger for Catholics, it's a danger for Protestants, it's it's a danger for every world we've ever looked at. And once you step into a code of behavior, you take that code as the final word on things. But when you do, enabling gets set up. That in defense of that, you begin to do things that hurt you or hurt other people. Robbits, or the hobbits live in a respectable world. Um, the, the fairy lands are in some ways respectable. They're settled there's a dignity, there's a beauty. Um, um, but interestingly, um, into these sort of settled world is is coming this evil. And there are a couple of moments that I just want to single out just because to me they illustrate um, the, the larger issue here. Remember when um, um, Bilbo is ready to set off and and Gal, um, Gandalf has come and then goes to meet him in his house and um, Bilbo plays around with the ring, he's he's dishonest about it and there's that moment when um, Gandalf gets furious with, with, a, with an anger that's so deep um, um, that, that you get a sense that it's like the holy entering the world, I think if I remember correctly waves begin to fade the scene and um, um, Bilbo looks terrified. We're in the presence of a numinous. That anger is an anger um, whose source is another world, and it has to break into that world. Take that anger away. Frodo goes, Bilbo goes on to do whatever he's going to do. The same thing happened with Frodo. When Frodo tried to play around with something, um, Gandalf got really angry at him with the same kind of effect, that Frodo shied back um, nervously because he was in the princess, in the princess, in the presence of something ter- terrible. Take that anger away, and that other world is helpless. It breaks in. It's, Flanner- it, it's there in Flannery O'Connor's world, when um, Old Tarwater shoots um, Raber. That when the respectable world is left to its own, it very often makes itself vulnerable because it cuts itself off from the numinous. That anger is one of the ways of cracking into it, breaking it open, saying stop. We saw another similar scene like that when Frodo's at um, um, Rivendell. Rivendell. Remember when he's reunited with um, Bilbo. It's a tender, touching scene. The acting to me was extraordinary. Bilbo is touched to see him, Frodo is glad to be there, the two are together. Bilbo wants to give Frodo gifts, so he gives him that sword that that, that lights up, that speaks when works around. And then he wants to give him that um, mithril for protection, and Frodo begins to unbutton his shirt and discloses the ring, and there's that moment, it's, it's just extraordinarily acted, when Bilbo is um, enchanted by it and starts to move towards and you can see the twitching in his face. He's doing everything he can to to hold back but he can't. Um, And um, he reaches out for it and then Frodo says no and then suddenly Bilbo's face becomes ghastly. It's like one of the ghostly faces we see later. Um, And you see this what I can only describe as a demonic, a demonic Grasping, that he, he 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 does not want to be denied. So in in so many ways, what that ring symbolizes is a threshold between this world and another world. There's nobody in the story, as it's presented in the movie. Um, Doc's read it and she There's a there's a a character named
4: Tom Bombadil.
0: Tom Bombadil who actually puts the ring on and is impervious to it, isn't affected by it all. I'd like to come to that another time, not tonight, because I really want to get into the story. There's only one character, and he's not even in Jackson's presentation. He's left him out. But if you look at every other character in this book, there's not a character who doesn't feel susceptible to that ring. Gandalf wants nothing to do. Glandra has to turn away from it. Boromir wants it. Frodo is worn down by it. Gollum, his attitude to me is an image, I believe, this is you can disagree with me on this. I believe Gollum is an image of something inside of every one of us. It's the feeling we've been left with from the fall. It's mine. It's mine. It's it's wanting to have power to have whatever we want. Or to free us from whatever threatens us. That ring. So that ring exposes um, something demonic that, that, that renders man, even though it seems to promise man power, it renders him absolutely helpless. Nobody deals with that ring who doesn't show they're undone by. Gandalf, early on, he's a wizard. He survives death. He knows even he can't fool around with that ring. So those are just some of, the, some of the, that's the summary, those are some of the effects that we're entering a mythic world, um, that good and e- the dimensions of good and evil are expanded far beyond anything we've read um, in, in anything since the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, um, here are some of the questions that I've got, and I'm, I'm just going to throw some of them out. But I would um, really would like to hear where you guys are. I'm going to do my questions, and then I'm going to ask you to forget my questions for a minute. I'd like to hear where you guys are with this, but here's some of my questions. Um, Tolkien's created these different orders of creatures. Men, elves, dwarves, wizards, hobbits.
5: Orcs.
0: Orcs. All of them look like men, even if they're disfigured. They all have heads, they all have arms, they all have feet. So the central image here is human, middle earth. And yet he's showing us these different orders, elves. Elves and dwarves are the principal ones. Hobbits play their, are central, but around them men, elves, dwarves. Why does he do that? What's, what's one of the effects of doing that? Um, it, we're in a mythic world, do we just leave it there at that? What th- this is a very human story. It's going gonna, it's gonna to end with the defeat of Sauron and the beginning of the age of men. So when the movie ends, the story ends, we've entered history, our time. So everything that he's shown us, in a sense, underlies human history. What has he gained by showing us elves, dwarves, hobbits? One question. Tolkien's absolutely modern. If you were to step into a modern university today, the teachers would be teaching... Um, Burroughs, Naked Lunch, stupid book, all about insanity. and Hemingway, Faulkner, I mean, you pick it. We've done Hemingway and Faulkner. I think, I, you know, this is my thinking, I think Faulkner, I think Faulkner and Tolkien are the two greatest storytellers of the 20th century. And in some ways, in, in humanist terms, I think Faulkner is the greatest story of the 20th century. Tolkien's in a different world. What does Tolkien give us that Hemingway and Faulkner do not. Can we name it? Why did he do this? Um, the The Lord of the Rings has become is I think one of the most popular works of the 20th century. Um, is this Catholic? Does it speak to our faith? If so, how? Anyway, those are some of my questions. I'm going to stop. Um, we don't have a book to refer to, so this may get wild, but what I would like you to do is forget my question, unless any, unless any of you are really absorbed by them, and if you are, we'll take them up, but my question is, what was your response? What do you think of the movie? What stood out for you guys? Um, why Did you enjoy it? Why? If you didn't, I'd really like to hear why you didn't, but um, what was your response to this? And, and but by the way, before we start, did any of you not read Tolkien, or had any of you not seen the movie before? Debbie said she hadn't. Barbara, you hadn't. Yeah. Can I start with you I guys? Haven't. Sorry, Tracy, was that... Who? It was what?
3: me? Oh, haven't. Candy. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, those of you who experienced this for the first time, what was your? What was your response coming out of the movie? What'd you think? Barbara, go ahead.
3: I have stayed away from that movie for years and years, um, simply because it's not, you know, all these ugly characters and all of these wars and all of this dissension is not something that attracts me. (laughs) Um, As I watched it, I could kind of ignore the part that I didn't like and I was um, delighted with the fantasy with um, the characters which I thought were really cast well especially Frodo and Bilbo and um, and so one of the things I have a hard time keeping up with because I have no auditory memory I keep having to go back and figure out people's names and
0: Hard to remember, yeah, their unusual needs, yeah.
3: And it's it's complicated. Um, But I did enjoy it much more than I thought I would. I'm still working on all the ugliness of people, you know. Anyway, all that fighting and all that stuff.
0: I'm surprised you've lasted it out then because you know that there's not a... I can't think of a work that, that we've done together... That didn't have violence. That's also that's almost a requirement, you know. Of course. Anyway.
3: Oh, well, I noticed. That.
0: <laughs> Barbara, let me before before you stop. Why you didn't? Why did you enjoy it? Can you can you say why?
3: Um, I always like things that have a point, and there was clearly um, good versus evil. Um, the difficulties that we have in. Um, in resisting temptation, um, the difficulty we have in seeing a clear path ahead. Sometimes we think we're doing the right thing and I'll be darned, it's, it's completely the wrong thing. And so I, I could see that in those characters and I really enjoyed
0: yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
3: because they look so different for me, I didn't have to Feel
0: like I was in the movie. <laughs> okay, so good. <laughs> That's good. Candy, what can you? If um, what was your response? If this was new for you.
4: Um, I was kind of like I'm kind of like with Barbara. I've I've never been interested in that genre of literature, so I it was okay. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's just okay to you,
4: yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Any who else didn't? Didn't. um, Who?
4: I didn't. I I didn't. I had. It was the first time I'd ever seen it, and I had not read it. Um, I I I guess I'm in the same boat with with uh, Candy and and Barbara. Um, Science fiction has never intrigued me, and I just not knowing much about this movie or it, it seemed to me that it was that kind of a genre and it just um, it, it's, it's not something that I really enjoy um, so I, it, although I must say I enjoyed it a whole lot more than I thought I would um, I, it's, it's one of those movies I think that you really need to see more than once okay. um, because I think Barbara's right it's very complex and, um, and and you're also right, Barbara, I, I have a hard time coming up with who's, people's names. <laughs> it's a little tough. Um, but, um, uh, and, and the thing that I thought was excellent was the music. Mm-hmm. I thought the way they, the music, I just, it made you feel. Mm-hmm. I remember when, and I, honestly I can't remember her name, she was the wood princess or wood queen, or she Regular. was, a, you know, had all who was playing that? Kate Blanchett, I think, played yep. that role. Yep. Um, when when he was leading and the music and her standing there, you know, in her, actually, I thought she looks like a saint because the way she was dressed and yep. just the, the music was was rather extraordinary. Yep. Um, so, but I, I really think it's the kind of thing that you need to see more than once, um, yeah. to really to get as much out of it as you can.
0: But just before two quick comments. One is it's Galadriel, but there were two scenes in the movie that, and you used the word saint, that I would have associated with Mary, and it actually
4: seems... actually Bob, that's exactly who I thought it yeah,
0: was. yeah, it was Mary. yeah.
4: Um, and she was standing there and yeah. and and waving goodbye. Um, that's exactly who I thought
0: of. Yeah, it's hard for me to believe Tolkien didn't have her in mind and Jackson as well. Two two scenes. One is when uh, Boromir arrived and Aragon was there in that um, that place of honoring antique things, the broken sword and some other things. Yeah. And um, um Aragon was looking at the at the statue of his mother. That that Statue of the Mother was a replica of Mary, and then we mm-hmm. saw it again in Gladry in that scene um, that you're talking about. It was hard to see her without seeing the Virgin yeah. beauty, the pristine beauty. The um, um, Barb, I mean Deb, before you go, how'd you put it? I, I'm not going to remember the words, but you said um, I liked it more than I thought I would. Can you say why? Can you feel? Can you flesh that out? Because you obviously I mean, you went well, into-
4: I, I think I had a prejudice because um, I have never been intrigued. I just, I don't sort of get um, science fiction kind of stuff. And I, I just, I, it's just not a genre that I like to watch. Yeah. Um, and any time that I've, I've tried that, I've tried to read science fiction books and, and things like that. Um, and my prejudice was that that's what this was. Um, and so when I actually sat down to watch it, it was something different than uh, what I had experienced before. Right, so right. I think that's the reason why I enjoyed it more than I anticipated that I was going to. Yeah, I thought it was, and, and frankly, I'd like to watch it again,
0: because
4: yeah. um, I think, I honestly think I'd get a lot more out of it the second time around.
0: Yeah. I, and hope Barbara, uh, I
4: think I'd remember the names a little bit better. Really? Yeah, maybe I think um, I take
0: notes. <laughs> don't do that. Just enjoy the movie, Michelle and Bill. I mean, you're of another group, and I, we haven't done this, but that I don't know if you guys have seen the movie or read. But what was your response? Either one of you, just
5: well, <clears throat> to uh, to talk to some of the other guests, it's like Narnia. Like if you watched Narnia. And you understand the background of Narnia; it's a whole different, it's a whole different genre. I mean, it's it's not, it's not fantasy. It's 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 amazing.
0: Yeah,
5: and watch the look. It's not so when you watch Lord of the Rings, and you understand that there's a background story behind Tolkien, it takes on a whole different level. Yeah. Um, The Hobbit. No, I'm talking about Narnia, which oh, is Narnia. the lion. And, yeah. You know, see us, see us. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I don't mean to mix. No, no, I mean, no. no. It's kind of concept, but we loved, we absolutely loved it, and we looked at this movie through the eyes of like, this is inspired by you know God, and thought um, it was fantastic. So.
0: Let me introduce these two tombs. Just two two terms that that will go to this. Um, Debbie, I'm not a fan of sci-, sci. I mean, I don't not watch it, but it's not a you know if it's a good movie. Lots of them I don't like because of what they do with them. But um, the governing what to call it the governing philosophy, the governing worldview since the 19th century, we've gone over this numerous times, we did it when we did Hemingway and Dostoevsky, And um, is naturalistic. Just hold on to that term, because the tenets of naturalism coming out of the 19th century is that science made it clear that there were all these things that were determined and couldn't be other than they were. So we've talked about that a good deal. The modern world tends to deny man's free will, it tends to hold himself to these tenets, that man's determined, um, he can't shake freely, he's a product of forces over which he has no control. When those tenets um, were first introduced, they shaped the modern artist, how he looked at the world. So if you look at artists in the Renaissance, 18th century, 19th century, and then look at 19th century, you become aware that there's a radical change taking place. If you set Shakespeare, or you know any Jane Austen next to a modern... So according to naturalism, man is a product of these forces. He can't escape them. So everything he does has to be in naturalistic terms. He can't, he can't move across that because anything else would be untruthful, would be dishonest, because the, the frame of things was determined by the sciences. So, for example, when Mark Twain was writing Huckleberry Finn or, or Tom Sawyer, he was responding to James Fenimore Cooper. If you if you've read any of the leather stocking stories of what's his name, Deerslayer, you know Deerslayer will be running um, um, from sixteen Indians, and he'll turn around or or he actually point i <laughs> I'm going to exaggerate he'll point a rifle over his shoulder and kill two of them, you know I mean he'll he'll do these extraordinary things. Twain thought that was just ridiculous because he thought it was not naturalistic that to write a story meant you had to stay within the conventions of naturalism. Hemingway's absolutely within. Name me a story in which he doesn't show characters in that world. That's his world. Faulkner does it, but goes outside of it. If you remember the Hamlet when he described Eula as this product of this Olympian ejaculation. I mean, Faulkner, um, Isaac's wooing of the cow. There are lots of things that Faulkner does that that show he holds himself to naturalistic standards but is um, making place for another world as well. So the, the modern artist tends to stay in this naturalistic world, defined that way, that's what determines everything. Lewis and Tolkien both knew that they believed by their faith that there was something more. The answer wasn't science fiction, that's a different genre, because that, if listen to the word, science fiction, it's, 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 set, it, it's set in a scientific world, but it's fictionalizing it in some way. Um, Lewis and Tolkien were not doing that. The name that they gave to their world was mythopoeic. Mythopoeic. That they saw that there were things going on in nature that couldn't be accounted for by the tenets of naturalism. So, Lewis did the Narnia, the Trilogy, the Space Trilogy, and, and um, Tolkien did the Lord of the Rings. Because they both knew that there was something not healthy to naturalism, that, that it was ignore, denying things that actually take place in nature, miraculous, mythic things. So, um, so it's it's just important to keep in mind when you talk about genres that that neither one of them, both of them would have understood the reason for science fiction, because science has so shrunk in our world that science fiction was a way of standing in the scientific world but breaking out of it in the way it was fictionalized. But they weren't being held to that. They knew that there was something beyond sciences, and it was important for writers to get to it. So when Lewis writes about his own writing and what the two of them are doing, he uses the word mythopoeic. Um, uh, But anybody else? Any um, Sue? I missed you. So where? Where?
6: Actually, this is the third time I've seen the movie, and for the very first time, I paid attention from the beginning. I guess because I had never picked up on the words that were being said prior to there being anything on the screen. Yeah. And that. There were several times in this viewing of it where I I thought that's the world we've lost, the world of Eden, the understanding of what could be. The evil has come into the world and life goes on, but we've forgotten our history. It's It's now not in our memory as much as it should be. And this was, in a sense, the quest to touch some of that, to me. The other thing that struck me, and this was sort of a much less serious thought, was that the hobbits reminded me of the the meek shall inherit the earth. Um, It was kind of, you know, they're the guys just eating and going on, liking, loving, and, and become the central, most important thing in in saving the world, we haven't gotten there yet, but in um, carrying out, and because they were so kind of simple, meek, um, Frodo, Bilbo, and then Frodo, were capable of dealing with extreme evil in a way that others had trouble doing. So th- those were two of the things that struck me this time that I hadn't kind of caught on to before, and part of it is to credit you that we're doing it in this class. So I took a little different look at what we were, what I was watching, instead of just the. I, I don't call this science fiction; I call it fantasy, in terms of a genre. But yeah. it's yeah.
0: That
6: that that doesn't lessen what you've said about it. It's the same kind of
0: yeah uh, yeah, Lewis beca- yeah. or uh, Token and Lewis would be comfortable with that too. Um, just, I. This may be splashing a little bit of cold water on your, um, in your description there, but, um, I, I. My belief is the same. I mean, close to yours that that um, the Shire, and particularly Bombadick, What's his Bombadil? Bombadil is as close to Adam. Bombadil is the one figure. The Shire's is not that way. One of the re- I mean, I, I. I'm absolutely with you with the Hobbits and their sort of meekness. Although one. of one of the things I do when I would say that in the same breath is say, "Be careful, because remember in that Hobbit world how much envy and and backbiting yeah. and and yeah. I mean they're anything but modest when Bilbo is not very kind to the other people and the other people are you know want to get to him, and at the end we see them all ravaging his houses. So even though there's an quality, and I think yeah. I I could I I love the way you said that Sue because I think it's absolutely. That we've lost that memory of something and that and and the that Tolkien loved—that life of simplicity. It was he, he? He was raised poor. He was raised in poverty, and his fondest memories were of um, country scenes with mills and simple workers and streams. And and I think the Shire is meant to, rec, you know, to hold on to that. That, and I, and you know, I think that's in all of us. That all of us long for that world. Um, but they're so even though they're simple, sometimes they're a long way from <laughs> from being oh yeah meek. Yeah. And what was the and the other thing is that as wonderful as that world is, and I and I think this is one of the reasons that these things are so important for me. And as appealing as it is, that world suburbia, I think, is America's effort to get back. Even though I think it's a collapse, is how vulnerable it is to evil. It's like Faulkner and The Hamlet. That that innocence um, makes itself more vulnerable to others, so that you know the warriors and all these other figures um, who are so often misled in what they do have to come in. But but I do I do agree that that's that's Tolkien's image of something we cannot forget. That's good in our human, and I love the way you put it in memory. That's, um ask Mark what you
6: thought.
0: Mark, of- oh sorry, go ahead.
6: I have one other thing to to say, because, you know, there were just some things that struck me. I just watched you today for the third time. So, um, one of the other things that occurred to me, and I haven't quite figured out what this means yet, but it was important to have followers, protectors, people who believed in you as there was with Jesus and his disciples, in the end, Jesus had to do his sacrifice by himself, just as Frodo does. He has to go on. But, but he still has his Peter, or his, his disciple, one disciple anyway, that continues on with him. And because I've seen the other movies, I know what kind of what transpires. But, but it did occur to me that it was interesting that there were these helpers, disciples that were critical along the way, and I—I I don't know. I don't know where that goes. I just had that thought.
0: No, and I, I'm so glad you—I'm so glad you made it to the. Just to add to that, <clears throat> um, I mean, to to just expand and add to what you're saying, because I'm so glad you said it. Frodo makes a point that he has to go on alone. Sam's not going to let that happen, but. Frodo's reached a point where he he says, I have to do this. And he doesn't want to do that, but he has to do it. Um, But to add to what you're saying, um, Gandalf is the wisest of all those in that fellowship. His wisdom surpasses. And he makes it clear repeatedly he does not know. Over and over and over again, he says, I don't know. When um, Frodo, I think it was, yeah, Frodo was critical of Bilbo for not killing Gollum. Um, Gandalf says he may have a role yet to play, and that's Gollum. And Gollum is is an image of what's you know, what's almost in, unredeemable selfishness, because at the end he he ends up in the fire. But Gandalf repeatedly said, you know, he, he's got a wisdom none of the other people have, and repeatedly he turns to Frodo, at, at, you know, when they're at the pass, and they're quarreling, he says, let, what do you say, the leader or the... The Hobbit, he says, let him decide, and he does that a number of times. He turns to Frodo because he doesn't know, and in his mind, it's like leaving it up to chance. You can bring Boethius in here, but Frodo has to make those decisions, and it's not because he's particularly wiser than anybody. He's not. He took on that job when nobody else, when everybody else was doing it for the wrong reason. So to to just reinforce, there's a humility that's present in. That group through Frodo, as a Hobbit, the men don't have the dwarves The dwarfs don't have, you know. Um, um, Gimli doesn't know what humility means until he's, you know, in uh, Gladry's presence. But, um, but yes, it's interesting to, and to watch the way they all fall in line. Boromir wants to overpower Frodo because he's a man and stronger, and then he realizes he betrayed him. That there is this spirit of humility um, that strengthens everybody to go along, even, even when it puts them in a, in a position of having to go along with something they don't understand and don't agree with. They have to do it. Um, it just, it, it reinforces a sense of of bonding, of strengthening their tie with each other to go along with this um, ring bearer. And that's the word that Gandalf, he says let the ring bearer decide Mark what was your response how, what, how did, did, have you watched this before or read the yeah. book? Yeah, no, I've seen, I've seen it
2: several times
0: um, I think there's a political
2: aspect of a lot of this depending upon the time after World War One when this was written where you have like the hobbits are kind of more of an isolationist type of community and you have the different factions don't know if they're directly representative of different Countries in the world about that time, but very, but they all act differently as countries would act and did act around World War One, and I think that there's also it's easy. It's I can't remember correct. I I can't remember if this is this is true or not. But I think some of the things were inspired by by what Tolkien went through in World War One. Some of the horrific things that he saw. But I think it's easier to get normal people who haven't seen war to understand evil if it's fantasy than if it's, you know, the real story of what happened, right? It's easier for people to accept some evil thing over there that's really bad or these monsters or whatever that you can get your point across through literature or movies or whatever Uh, much easier than if it's a reality, I guess, type scenario, um, and I, and I, I just find the care all of the different little characters, even you know the 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 orc characters or the troll characters, you just even though they're just basic characters, but the the way that they're represented and what they represent in the story itself. Um, and the language itself. I mean, the, the fact that Tolkien actually created all of those languages. I mean, I mean, his his intelligence must have just been off the chart. I mean, he didn't. He, I think, he literally made an Elvish language and he made a dwarvish language. I mean, an entire language.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, hell, we
2: can't even speak English. I mean, my <laughs> God. Um, but 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 I, I do enjoy the the characters and even, even I, you know even if you look at let's say a city could be a character in the way that it is presented um, in the way that it looks or a type of people as a character as well I, I think that there's a lot to that that it was done so well you know, you know it's, it's like when it's done when you read a good story you don't see it for a while right it just it just works Um and then the more you watch it and the more you see it or the more you read it, you find more and you find more and you find more. Uh, and I just think I think it's it, it's just an extraordinary um, a, a work of literature because of that. I think yeah. it, it's, it's I'm not going to put him up there with Shakespeare or anything like that. But it is one of those things that the more you read it, the more you get. You yeah. keep
0: finding something new. Yeah. Couple, couple comments, Mark, a um, couple of responses. One is it's, it's interesting you should bring Shakespeare in here. There have been times when I've watched it. I'm not kidding, and you know, I think you all know how critical I am of literature and um, what it means to me. There have been times when I've said of myself, when Susanna and I are watching it, he's doing what Shakespeare did for our language now, what Shakespeare did you know, 400 years ago. I, I think what he does with language is amazing. Two quick comments. Um, one is, you know, you made the comment that um, th- if if you were to present a war story, I, I'm gonna like uh, Saving Private Ryan or um, I Black I can't
3: Hawk
0: Down. Hmm? Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down, you know, are, are um, terribly graphic in their violence, and I think terribly important because I I think one of the problems with our world is that we're too much like the hobbits that we we hide and shut ourselves in and I know there's a danger to that, but but um I just want to go back and reinforce the point that I made earlier in light of what you said. One of the difficulties with things like Black Hawk Down or um, Saving Prime Ryan, you used the word you know, when, when it's I can't remember your word mark, but when it's presented more realistically. One of the problems with that is what I suggested a minute ago and it's what troubled Lewis and Tolkien is that when you present movies that way unlike Shakespeare, because the miraculous, miracles happen all the time in Shakespeare. But in the modern mind, in a, in a, in a war movie presented realistically, you're not going to have wonder. As we did in the Iliad. That is, they're, they're, they're so governed by naturalistic theories that when they present a story, uh, they don't let another dimension in. So both Tolkien and Lewis were reacting to that and saying, you know, violence in itself just isn't violent. God God is not absent from battlefields. God's present. The trouble with realism or naturalism today is that its presentation doesn't allow for something more. Whereas here in, in Tolkien, it does. The second thing I just wanted to comment on is, I, I'm glad you mentioned the war. I, I don't think either, I don't think Tolkien wanted to confine it to the war because I think his mind was mythic. He, there was something more universal. But it's hard for me to watch it without being aware of exactly what you said in terms of the movie because if you look at um, The Shire, you get a very identic world where people are working with nature. Even if they've got faults, you know, they grumble and do what they do. They love to eat. They love to smoke. They love to grow. They want to be left alone. They want to enjoy themselves. But set off against that is Sauron... And I I can I cannot watch Saurin without seeing Hitler in love with machines and the power that comes from machines because if if you watch, if, and if you go back in history and watch the West come out of the First World War with Germany and Hitler developing armaments in violation of all the treaties and Chamberlain going we don't want another war and Hitler and or, uh, Churchill going are you kidding? He's violating all these treaties, we've got to stop him now, because the people didn't have courage to go to war with Hitler, which would have cost us 5,000 lives. We ended up losing millions, in addition to the Holocaust. So it was that excessive love of comfort that actually made the war worse. But those two worlds, to me, are perfectly captured in Tolkien because you've got that rustic world of simplicity in the Shire with mills, and harvesting, and growing, and people getting along even with their failings, and Sauron creating machines, Saruman. Or, Saruman. or Saruman creating machines and these mechanical things who are covered with armaments, and so you've got a mechanistic world, a modern machine world, set off against this more idyllic um, green world, you know, that Tolkien's doing. Um, which I think will probably always be true. But here, we're getting close to... We have time
3: for
0: Fred. Yeah, Fred. um, I I want to be careful of time because we're... um, What was your... I know you were enjoying it, but what are are some of your thoughts? I I enjoyed your comments um, that we got from you, but what was your response to any of this, what we've been talking about or anything else?
7: I think everyone's covered quite a lot, I guess a couple of things maybe for me you know to me the ring kind of represents the evil that lurks in man and and that evil kind of focused on you know all the things that you know the consolation of philosophy warned us against power wealth those things that drive men yeah. you know to the dark side or the absence of of god and the characters, to me, all reflect different characteristics of man and what can happen in that ultimate battle of good and evil. For, you know, the the elves, for example, are, are kind of from that mystic forest kind of land. And Elrond is probably the best example I can focus on He's he's probably higher up on the food chain in in terms of how he looks at um, that good versus evil. But what what happens, I think, sometimes is the elves kind of isolated themselves from the rest of humankind Mm -hmm. because, you know, that, that whole aspect of evil, they were... You know, trying to distance themselves from, and, and it resulted in a, an isolation. You look at uh, go, the Golem, the Orcs, that whole cast of characters, kind of reflect what can happen to man if he gives in to that 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 evil. And you and and you see various characters of mankind that kind of cover the gamut. You know. Um, Aragon is, you know, obviously a, on the, the better side of good. Um, Boromir kind of reflects, you know, what can happen if you if you drift. Interestingly, and I, I don't know if Suzanne noticed this, but Filimor in the movie who? kind of who oh, Fillimer, the the younger son of uh, the brother of, of Boromir. Boromir.
4: Yeah,
7: we yeah. don't get him until the next movie. Far- Faramir. Uh, he, he, um, he, he, in the movie, he kind of almost sort of gives in to the to the ring, but in the book, he doesn't. He realizes right off the no, bat that no, that you know he 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 needs to give the ring back to or or the um, oh God, what's the guy's name? <laughs> Faramir. <laughs> uh, Frodo. Frodo. You know, needs to keep the ring. I mean, he's he's able right. to resist. Right. So the point being that. There, there's kind of this east-west thing going on. the the evil the evil side of the the, the characters are in the east, you know the, the the good side are in the west. And even well, of course, it's you won't see it till the we we've seen them all, and you don't really see it till the end. But anyway, this this whole cast of characters sort of reflect mankind's struggle with. The sin that the the ring represents. Yep.
0: Yes. Earlier,
7: for me anyway.
0: Fred, if you you enjoyed it, obviously. I mean, you because of your no. Why did you enjoy it? Or let let me if I can ask. I mean, this is maybe too focused, but if you set Hemingway or Faulkner, I love. I think Faulkner is. I mean, you know, I think he's one of the most extraordinary artists of the twentieth century. If you set Faulkner's, any of his works, which I think are great, next to this, what's the difference? And, and you obviously enjoyed this. Why did you enjoy it? What's the difference between what Tolkien's doing and somebody like Faulkner or Hemingway?
7: Uh, well, as you know, I, I like Faulkner a lot. But, first of all, Faulkner's a lot more difficult to read. And the, the subtlety of... of of Christianity of, of goodness you have to kind of dig out and, and find the little nuggets um, like um, the mentor of Sam fathers yeah yeah uh, yeah you know it, it, you have to kind of put a lot of effort into it to kind of you know get it if you will uh, with what Tolkien it's it's like right out there in front of you I mean almost from the very beginning you look at some of, well, like, I think it was Sue that mentioned the opening of the, of the movie right. and, and, and of the book. Um, if you look at, you know, Gandalf, I mean, almost every other thing Gandalf says has got Boethius in it.
0: <laughs> it's true. I
7: think it's a lot more present in front of you that, um, you know, we're reading something written by a Roman Catholic.
0: Wow, this is not the time. But I'm I'm going I think I'm gonna start next week, because I really want to get there. I mean, you just sort of threw a lightning bolt at everybody. I'm I'm glad you did, but I I, I don't want to treat that briefly. So I want to come back to it. Um, Tracy, I know. Um, no, I had a question, but um, I'm gonna go. Tracy, where 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 had you, had you read it before or or seen the movie, and what was your response? What what stood out for you? And I'm going to put you on the spot. So now with this, all this stuff that we're doing, how are you going to take this to your work in an art museum?
1: Just ask what she saw of the movie. I don't know. I, I read The Hobbit a long, long time ago, and I remember not really understanding it, but somehow being drawn into it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I had seen snippets of the movie and also kind of avoided it because it looked kind of violent. But I knew that Tolkien was a Catholic and that it was... Like Narnia more than it uh, more than it seemed. So I, I had all this background, um, but I, I can't really I don't know what stood out to me.
0: Sir, you don't know what say it again. What
1: I don't know what oh. stood out to me. I
0: don't, don't believe read that. The book, Come so on, what
1: what
0: what was your response when it was down? What did what was your response? To the, you want? Did you watch the whole movie? Talking to me? Yeah. Yeah, I did. What was your response to it when it was over?
1: Well, I guess the the best to me was the 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 confession at the end like,
0: uh, I Boromir? Can't think of his name. Boromir. Boromir.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That struck me the most, I guess.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I, I to me it was the climax it was the climax of the movie. That's such a you know he, he's ready to kill Frodo 20 minutes earlier and now he's Killing all these orcs, and he knows in his heart he's done something wrong. Um, I think what I mean, I, I really agree with Fred when he says that there's something evil in that ring. It it it's an image of something evil in all men, and yeah, to me um, it's the
1: world, you know, the worldliness, worldliness that we cannot let go of, you know. And when you try to let go of it, just calls you and it God. just like clumps at you, you know. And then the other thing that struck me. So, um, was the courage, the courage that they all had? I mean, yeah. that's something that um, you know—it's dangerous to have courage.
0: <laughs> but it's also necessary. Um, remember, Christ said, "Be not afraid." Um, I want to—I'm going to call this to an end here. But I want to—I want to, if I can, point just see if I can pull some things together. Fred mentioned Fairmere, who's um, Boromir's brother. He doesn't really come into the movie until this next part we're watching, The Two Towers. Um, and I just want to uh, sort of lay out a couple of lines of thought here. I've, I've, I've not watched it in, in a long time, so my memory's not going to serve you very well, but but one of the interesting things that he does, what Tolkien does in the, in the next um, work in Two Towers is deal with um, political things more directly. It goes to Mark's point, and I think to Fred's both. Because we're going to be dealing more directly with kings, leaders, and their influence on their people. So we began the work in the Shire. Well, no. We began the work in in the movie with this backstory of this mythic age in which the elves and men combine to try to fight off... um, um, Sauron. Sauron, and um, and um, the Elsiodor Il- 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 cuts off the finger and the ring and gets it, and then you know the ring gets passed on and it has a life of its own. <clears throat> but we we move from the Shire to these two elf lands, so and into a dwarf world in the underworld. Um, and to sort of touch on what Fred said, it, it seems to me this is me. So. It seems to me that one of the things he accomplishes in the Elves is to show something angelic in man. They're so quick and fast. They have a delicacy of mind. They, you know, Legolas is, I mean, you know, it's amazing to watch him do what he does. But Elves have um, this airiness. I think it's, it's associated with the intellect, like angels. The dwarves belong to the body. They're more earthy. They're greedy. They, uh, they want to control things. They want to eat. Always. Um, they have a greed for earthly things, the worldliness that you're talking about, but it's earthly. So. And beauty. Well, they, yeah, well, but, right, yeah. But it's interesting that, that there's that dynamic between something that's. If you look at the elfin kingdoms, they are exquisitely beautiful. You, I mean, the design and the fineness of them. Um, so there's something angelic and delicate and um, <coughs> almost ethereal. <clears throat> to the elves, and something earthly and clayish, and um, but both of them are so capable in what they do. Um, I if you've done if you watch The Hobbit, you know when the uh, elves gather at and um, Bilbo's dwarves, dwarves, or sorry, the dwarves when they clean up after they the him out of a house and home they just clean up like an efficient machine? I mean, they, they don't drop plates, they don't miss anything. So even though they're very different, they share this similarity that they're very efficient at what they do in two different ways. So in some ways, they, they, they enlarge our sense of those two aspects to our nature. Those are there. Um, but anyway, to go back to my point, so we start in, in the Shire and move into these two fairy worlds, and then set off in the rest of the quest. What we're going to find in Two Towers is Tolkien's treatment of kings, different kings, and their effects on their communities. And I think in that, um, he's looking, once again, I, I don't think it's directly tied to the First or Second World War, but um, because I think it's mythic and it's tied to something larger. But in one sense, it, it has to deal with what Shakespeare dealt with in every one of his plays, practically, and a condition that's timeless. But so much of what goes on in a community reflects its leaders. So you've got um, Saruman creating this um, nightmare world of monsters to take over. And you've got um, these kings and their misgovernance. The, the, the ineptness, the constant failure to deal with things. And Um, When we move from Fellowship into Two Towers, we're going to move away from Boromir, um, who wanted to protect Gondor, to Faramir, his brother, who is the son, the king, the father, most disdained. So in Two Towers, we're going to get a closer look at human beings and the weakness of men. The tendency of leaders to make mistaken judgments constantly the effect on their people, what it does to them. And um, because the kings are have families, we're watching not only political leaders but fathers and the awful things that fathers can do. And it's also in this second section, dealing with Fairmere and the two kings, that women begin to take a prominence. So we're out of, um, um, what's her name? Um, Glad- Glad- Galadria. 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 We, we're removed from that fairy world into this world of humans and sexual relationships between men and women. One of the things I don't want to forget before I before we um, stop tonight. Tolkien is dealing with death directly. I mean, it goes to Mark's point and Fred's that he's dealing more directly with evil in a way that Hemingway doesn't. He's looking at the depths of evil, its metaphysical origins, you know, in a spiritual world, he's looking at evil here, how demonic it can become. He's dealing with death constantly. It's in front of us. I can't, I think Fred, it's it's right up front. You can't miss it. And its implications are right there. One of the things I think it's important not to overlook in that in the first um, of the works, the fellowship, is that scene between Arwen and Aragon when they come to um, Rivendell. Yeah, when they're at Rivendell. And we learn that the two have already engaged themselves and so they've fallen in love. And on that bridge scene, um, it becomes clear that, um, I can't remember her words, but they were extraordinary. She said, I would rather have one life with you than an infinite life without you because as an elf, she's immortal. But she gives up her mortality for love. So one of the governing themes of the whole work is the power that love has to give people the courage to fight evil. And it seems to me it's centered in that scene because she's making it, and it's a woman. She's making it clear. And remember, she's the one who gets Frodo and saves him. The Dark Riders are after her. She calls on her powers to make that river overwhelm them. But her words are, I'm sorry, I don't have them. I, I would rather have one life with you than an infinity without you. Um, So so here's what I want to say. One of the papers that I put on our line is called, I think, The Gift of Mortality. One of the things that, um, that Tolkien is showing us is the gift of mortality. The reason we can feel what we do at the end when Boromir dies is because he dies so well. He has enough courage, enough love to, to fight off this evil at the cost of his own life. I mean, I find it—it's hard for me to watch that scene, particularly when Aragon bends over him and kisses his forehead. I mean, it's a teary scene for me. It's a man kissing another man on the forehead. He's honoring him for his bravery. So one of the things that I think Tolkien is showing us is the gift of mortality. That um, what we do with our lives matter. You know, if, if we if we give up our lives, that gift, the the fruit of it. In the movie, is this? I don't know what to call that land that you know where where all the creatures go to live forever. Um. So I, I, I just think it's important to keep that notion in your mind: the gift of mortality that that. Each human being is given an opportunity to give his life up, that gift, to give it back. And in surrendering himself, in dying and accepting a death, he, he makes life possible come out of it. He's doing what Christ did. Um, so, And we're going to find something similar to that in what goes on with the brothers, um, the sons, and daughters in the Two Towers. So the focus will shift. We're going to go into a world that's much more um, explicitly political. We're looking at political kingdoms with rulers and their subjects and their sons and what happens with them. So once again Tolkien is taking us into area we all know but he's, he's showing a depth of good and evil that most modern writers are incapable of showing. So it's a good. It's a good. It's a good book. It's a. It's a good. Can't say that. It's a good film. It's a good film. Okay. Any any last comments before we go? Be sure you watch the movie. It's. Um, it, these are extraordinary. We're we're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I'm glad for the time we are spending. I'm I'm glad for all your comments tonight. Um, uh, it was good to hear all that you had to say. Any last comments? Thank you professor. Always enjoy it. You're welcome, Bill. I keep, you know, I, I think about meals on wheels. I wonder if they have a popcorn on wheels for movie nights. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> See you guys next week. Have a good week. Have a good week. Adios.